One of the best parts of approaching the Shakespearean plays as we have, that is, in a roughly chronological manner, is that we've seen the growth of Shakespeare as a writer. We've commented on it a number of times on this podcast. Shakespeare's early plays lacked a certain something that his later ones became known for. It's hard to put together an exact description of the gap between those early texts and the ones that we've recently been discussing, but it tends to come across in every subject. The jokes are funnier, the drama is more engaging, the characters more interesting, and the writing more poetic. There might not be any better set of works that juxtapose one another than the two historical tetralogies. The first one is a bit clumsy, a bit overpacked, a bit hackneyed even. The second is a tightly wound, compelling, character-driven arc with a delicious blend of comedy, pathos, and beautiful, beautiful poetry. On the surface, they couldn't be more similar, but in substance, they couldn't be more different. What both tetralogies have going for them is the recent adaptations by the British Broadcasting Corporation, called The Hollow Crown. So just as we did with the first tetralogy, we took the opportunity to watch this modern adaptation to see what it could reveal to us about the plays that we've been dealing with, mostly individually up to this point. And watching Richard II, Henry IV, and Henry V only reconfirmed the evidence of Shakespeare's growth. Unlike the first tetralogy, the BBC didn't feel the need to cut entire plot lines out or bridge three long plays into two average-length films. It didn't need to repurpose scenes or add huge stage direction to fill in gaps in the story structure the way Henry VI did. Unlike the first tetralogy, we could view these four films not as a reimagining of the source material, but as straight adaptations, trying to tell the cohesive story that is in the text and has been in our minds for these past few episodes. Also unlike the first tetralogy, this time we wouldn't go it alone. We were lucky to be joined this episode by James from the Shakespeare On Screen podcast, which, as I'm sure you'd surmise, is focused on various Shakespeare adaptations on screen. We were happy to have James and his deep knowledge of Shakespeare plays being brought to life on film on the podcast as we discuss the highs and lows of the second tetralogy and the first season of The Hollow Crown. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat me, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And together we are the Bix. And we are here with a very special guest. We've got James from Shakespeare On Screen joining us to discuss The Hollow Crown Season 1. Say hi, James. Hi, I'm James. I host uh, Shakespeare On Screen, a little amateur podcast where I meet up with uh, friends and special guests to talk about adaptations of Shakespeare plays. And uh, I, when I say adaptations, I mean adaptations. My first episode, a friend from my Shakespeare reading group got me to watch Get Over It, this little known modernized adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And oh. we've got Lion King and plenty of other things on our list. I'm hoping to get these two wonderful hosts to come back to watch The King with me. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, because yeah, we, we sat in with you and we talked about Hamlet, right? No, sorry, uh, Macbeth. No, Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. The 2015, uh, yeah. Yeah, yes. um, which was fantastic. It was such a great conversation. And so obviously we had to have you back on. Once you told us that... Uh, how much you love the hollow crown it was like yes. a no-brainer and and this is this is your bread and butter like looking at adaptations of shakespeare on screen um 
like it's a, yeah, it was a no brainer to have you on for this. So we're super thrilled to have you on. And uh, well, it's and such an really honor. <laughs> so yeah, we're here today to focus mostly on uh, yes, yeah, Lindsay called it season one of the Hollow Crown. Uh, I'm sure in Britain it's series one or something like that. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's it's the uh, second Henriad uh, or the second tetralogy, the Henriad. It's it's Richard the Second through to Henry the Fifth, um, and it was uh, released in 2012. Uh, and it is a fairly faithful. Uh, there's four episodes. Uh, they're each about two hours, two and a bit hours long. Uh, so they're really four films uh, that are pretty much straight adaptations of uh, the titular plays. So uh, we had, uh, and the, the interesting thing obviously is that obviously the, the cast is uh, fairly continuous throughout um, and you really get a sense of the arc that uh, the, the characters, especially from Henry the fourth part one, all the way through to Henry the fifth, you get the story of Hal. So um, that's really kind of one of the really engaging parts of it. Um, and it, it really is a, a fairly faithful adaptation. Uh, Lindsay and I, when we first started watching it, we were like, wow, they really didn't either cut too much, add too much, uh, do too many tweaks. There's yeah. a few scenes that seem to, to uh, shift from, especially Henry the fourth part two into part one a little bit. Um, but they were, they were for the most part uh, all there. There are a few very interesting stylistic choices um, that we wanted to start off with. Um, the most interesting one for me, and I think for Lindsay too, was uh, that Richard the second kicks off with uh, the death of King's speech. Yes. Um, and it really kind of sets the mood for the whole rest of the series is really all about, um, you know, the, the role of Kings and, and how they die. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, it was really interesting that way. Uh, Lindsay, I know you kind of mentioned that, uh, that you, you found, uh, especially Henry the fifth, I think it was, I, I, we were just talking about this yesterday, yeah. uh, where you were like, yeah, I really didn't think, find anything that really like drew me out of, having just recently read some of the plays and stuff, nothing really drew you out and, and kind of took you aside the way season two um, kind of did where they had to condense Henry the sixth parts one, two, and three down into two shorter movies. Yeah. Well, not had I, to, but wanted to. Yeah. They chose to. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and who can blame them? Because as we, we all know who've read uh, Henry the sixth, they are not the most engaging plays. Unlike <laughs> this Henry ad, which, I mean, you see Shakespeare come into his own as a, as a writer already. And, and you have these, these great characters of Hal and Falstaff and everything. So um, in this, this second Henry ad, the, the second tetralogy, um, those elements in in this, the hollow crown uh yeah they're just they're omnipresent they're very it's it's such a faithful adaptation um and i think it's what what is changed from the plays such as starting richard the second with that uh the death of king speech some of the choices that were made in uh henry the fourth part two um they all kind of thematically link those four plays together in such an interesting way that makes this a really powerful set of films to watch. And I know Jamie, you mentioned that uh, Richard the second was your favorite of the, yes. of all of the hollow crown or just this season or. Between this and the rich, the third, it is a good toss up, but mm -hmm. maybe Richard the second is probably my favorite of them all. Yeah. Um, so 
kind of a fun fact I, I know about th this series was this was made and this was commissioned in 2012, which was the basically one of the, I don't want to say last, but it was, certainly was the biggest bright spot of the tens for Britain mm. because mm. this was was right when they hosted the Olympics. It was Correct. Queen yes. Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee. She yep. had she had become tied with with Queen Victoria and soon would pick, pass Victoria as the longest reigning British monarch. Yep. And uh, she's just two years shy of um, whatever they're going to call seventy years. <laughs> yeah. So amazing on her i don't yeah. know if i'll ever get that again yeah no kidding yeah and so and i do wonder just um and i did live for three months in london okay in 2012 actually but it, it is strange that it makes sense on paper of cultural celebration we do a shakespeare series mm -hmm. but of all the shakespeare series to do and the true tone they chose and to have it begin with let us tell sad tales of the death of kings yeah yes. this is an interesting form like because it's not a prideful and you we were before we started recording you said that there might be jingoism at play but i, I gotta say uh, and and when we talk maybe specifically about henry v like henry v in particular is a play that can really be and if, if you've seen the olivier play, ver, movie it was intended that way. It can be an utter propaganda play that's just the yes. celebration of the might of England and the glory yeah. of Henry V, this great, wonderful embodiment of everything that you want in a medieval king. Yeah. But having it, but the way that they frame just the Henry V play to begin and end at Henry's funeral. Yeah. yeah. I felt a bit of, to quote from Shelley, just like Ozymandias of just that this is like, this is the, this manages to almost top Brana's film of being nihilistic mm -hmm. in, in that all that Henry V does to accomplish and, and this amazing triumph at Agincourt, even in that moment where he gets heard the facts just look at what what's surrounding him and look at the way that they're celebrating it we it's more like we won but there's no sense of like this rousing we won it's more like yeah. oh we won yeah <laughs> yeah what like, yeah us i bloody guess yeah. exhausting and like i guess we won yay yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's made further important and so kind of getting into the cycle this whole thing and i love about the hollow crown is it, I, I love Game of Thrones and I love history. And so Shakespeare's histories were perfect match in heaven for me. And yeah. this series, going for this Game of Thrones aesthetic that they're obviously influenced by. Mm. And of course, um, kind of a fun note for casting is that they have, is that this series of The Hollow Crown makes sure that they always have two actors from Harry Potter and one actor from Game <laughs> of Thrones appear in every every movie. Every episode, yeah. The weirdest yeah. one uh, I'll say just is, is Ian Glenn. Ian Glenn, a.k.a. Jorah Mormont, just like is in yeah. there for like this total walk-on character. It's like, yeah. why Sit did down you at the get table, him? Like there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. why did you get him other than like, we got Game of Thrones people? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It Contractual was, it, it obligation. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The producers are like, yeah, well, we need one. So uh, we'll yeah. just grab Sir Jorah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, no, it's true. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, other ones like for for Richard II early on though, and Richard II I appreciate. It's it's partially because Richard II is not a celebrated play in Shakespeare's canon. Yeah. I think undeservedly, mm-hmm. it's I think one of the mo- his most captivating plays. And to kind of charitably disagree with something Aiden said in the Richard II <laughs> episode is um, I think that Bolingbroke is not an underwritten character. I think Bolingbroke and Henry the Fourth in general is one of Shakespeare's most complex characters mm. because right there with with Hal you get such a big wide arc for Henry the Fourth that you see him in Richard the Second as a usurper and what exactly his his attitude is in being a usurper and taking the the crown from this tyrannical king or is he a tyrannical king right and exactly how much problems is created by that and then henry the fourth the un the uncomfortable belligerent king that's yeah doesn't have a firm hold on on his power and then finally the dying henry the fourth who is yeah. just panicky and desperate and completely Apparently. has no faith in his son yeah. who he thinks is terrible yeah and that's no, it's, an amazing journey. And finally, at the end, being able to forgive his son and reconcile with his son. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. And like, I got to say, like, seeing Jeremy Irons play it, I think helped a lot. <laughs> like, like, it, I did my my opinion of the character definitely changed. And it's not just Jeremy Irons from Rich from the Richard Second Rory Kinnear as Bolingbroke. Yeah. What I love for this and what. And I understand why you say underwritten, but it's really just the case of that Bolingbroke and and this whole cycle is defined by foils. You have Bolingbroke and Richard and yep. and Richard the Second. You yeah. have you have Hal and Hotspur in in Part One of Henry the Fourth, as well as mm-hmm. Henry the Fourth and Falstaff. And then you mm-hmm. have in uh, Henry the Fifth, you have the Dauphin and Henry the Fifth. Yeah, uh, you have these contrasting characters and so for with what i love about what they what rory kinnear takes and please chime in but i found that what they went for and it almost is borderline lancaster propaganda it's just henry the fourth the way that that kinnear plays it he's such a nice honest guy and he's utterly sincere and he just and he really does just accidentally usurp the throne it's just like well that's exactly i really did just I when just we were watching it, lands. we're like, we're like, this guy comes on and he looks like he's got male pattern baldness. Like he just showed up in a van, like his minivan <laughs> dropping his kids off. Like he's not prepared <laughs> for any of this stuff. Yeah. And it happens to him. And he kind of just looks dumbstruck the entire time. Like this was not what I planned. And it, it is a really brilliant move because in talking about the arc of Bolingbroke over the course of the, the whole this whole series um, and the whole arc of the, the four movies. I mean, this is an accidental King who, who gets the crown and then can't really reconcile his position with the crown and has to pass it on to his son who also can't reconcile his position in this usurped lineage also, potentially. Yeah. Who's also never supposed to be King, you know, he yeah. had grown up not you know he was just the son of a duke and all of a sudden yeah. here he is the well, yeah. the grandson of a duke really and then yeah. all of a sudden here he is king and it's uh and it is yeah it's it's really interesting that way to to see richard um 
you know, is really kind of the only kingly magisterial figure uh, in the play because all the other kings are very like rough and tumble. And Jeremy Irons has none of, uh, especially like in part two, he has none of Richard's accoutrement or gold, anything or monkeys. You know, it's it's very. And just talking about performances, just that that. And he said Michael Jackson, and you can completely see it in the performance. Oh, yeah. Just like this Michael Jackson, just like, and this etherealness and this remoteness and also arbitrariness. And in terms of direction and kind of getting into maybe a little bit, I don't want to get dominate Richard II too much. (laughs) Um, I warned them in advance. I could talk forever about Richard II. but, but, But the brilliance by Gould, the director of the Richard II movie, of just building up and one in casting uh james purfoy a big name actor who was mark antony in rome mm-hmm. just being like for mowbray you think and they they build up the tension for this this duel even more than yeah. the text of just like having these scene, this montage of both of them training oh, yeah. For yeah. the so it's just like, oh wow, this is going to be amazing, this amazing <laughs> trial by combat, and then suddenly just, just like Richard throws down the the gauntlet and says like, nope, yeah. and that shows his yeah. his arbitrariness and and yeah. how he's looking at a monkey the entire time is like, oh, I'm going to bash you for ten years and you for life. Yeah. yeah. And just this time watching it through again, it's just like, wow, you really hate him. It's Until hard not he, to like, like to to like him. It really is, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It really Which is only me- when he loses his crown and like you realize yeah. the problem that this is going to cause, and that's part of why I love Shakespeare's writing. And yeah, well, big yeah. shocker, but Shakespeare is brilliant of yeah. just that that. And I do understand, like it's part of him towing the line of of Tudor propaganda that he has to follow. But Shakespeare is much more, I think, than people suspect critical of the Lancasters. He's just as critical of the Lancasters as he is of the Yorkists. Well, and that's that kind of leads into the first big point that we wanted to talk about with specifically with Richard II is that um it does seem and it's it's there in the text that but but it's really played up in the film that Richard is like this holy figure almost like he is presented mm-hmm. surrounded by gold and he is the he's anointed with the oils like you can't get rid of that. That's all there in Shakespeare's text. And it's true. That's how Kings were meant to inherit and hold on to their power. Um, but the fact that he's presented in this way is almost like a, a godlike figure or a Jesus figure or something mm-hmm. um, that pervades that whole film. And it really does speak to the complexity of that, that he's not, he's not a villain. He's not the greatest character. He's not someone that, that seems like a nice guy or anything, but he's, no. he's definitely um, the, the whole thing is complicated because he is the rightful King. Yes. And, and, and then his power having his power taken by this, like we said, like Roy Kinnear playing this, this King who kind of bumbles in and, and takes the throne. Like it, it does make it very, I, I don't know how the word to describe it, but it, it's very poignant. It's very, it's an interesting yes. thing. It is all in the text, but the film really does play that up. Well, and, really and nice. it's interesting to see it kind of transition into the other ones. Cause again, yeah, like uh, Henry the fourth is very 
you know, lacks all of that. His, his, his court is very humble and there's a simple table and his, his chair there is pretty simple and everything. Um, and with Hal, even as you continue down that path, um, it seems like he's trying to attain the, the gold, uh, standing as it were of kingship through victory, like through martial arms. It's, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, he's trying to combine the, uh, you know, uh, fearsome, uh, battle winning habits of his father with, you know, the ceremonial kind of love of, uh, from subjects. Although I don't think subjects really love Richard the second necessarily, but, uh, it's, he's trying to, he's trying to reclaim the, the rightful, uh, grasp on on the throne itself uh through well not uh, just that it's it's the the war with france and to kind of jumpstart but but a, a big part of it is really throughout the play and he kind of makes it clear much more clear of that when he's praying mm-hmm. is that is that it's his attempt to legitimize yep. lancastrian rule i mean yeah. he theoretically they did that with shrewsbury Shrewsbury right. is like the vindication of, and the, not, not to bring too much of the real histor- historicism, but that was kind of what Shrewsbury was, was that which the Lancasters weren't the, the legitimate heirs of, of Richard II. It's like, no, mm-hmm. it's then the Mortimers and then you. Yeah. Which, and then the Mortimers eventually became the Yorkists, yeah. which eventually became a problem down the line. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the... And one of the things, and I, I love, is that it is that they include this critical line at the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, that's often forgotten. That puts everything that then happens in Henry the Fifth in a wholly different life. Of that, Henry the Fourth's dying advice to his son that yes. look, like I usurped the throne, and they never forgot that. The only way they will forget that you are the son of a usurper is to go to make wars. Yep. And that really makes throughout this. Th- there's many ways you can interpret, even by Hiddleston's performance as Henry, as Hal and Henry, of just how much of this is just a cynical PR move. How much of this is all just cynicism? Mm-hmm. And it really makes the case when once you have that line in mind of the sad story of the death of kings yeah. of that, th- that, that all of this war with France, they don't include the, the infamous Salic law scene, which kind of hammers away how, yeah. how idiotic th- this ludicrous claim to, <laughs> to like being king of France, yeah. but just, just having a, that line previously and that we were meant to view this as a cycle to have that in there makes us understand that, Oh wow. You don't believe in this at all. You are just doing this so so you have a firmer grasp on power. Like you're not even interested in glory. You just want to make sure that you still got your job and you're going to yeah. have thousands of people die just so you can ensure that you have a stable grasp on power. Well, and that kind of tracks with Henry's with with Hal's behavior and mannerisms throughout the first and second part of Henry the 4th too, right? Like he's he's presenting one thing, but in his mind, like he's, it's a very cynically written role. If you can play it that way um, to have him be like, I'm going to be friends with the whole East cheap crowd, but I'm really just doing this. I'm, I'm going to 
turn everything around when I'm the king. They're going to see me for like all of his actions can be seen as as PR in a way, right? So it, it does track really well with that. It's it's really something to see it done in a film and and to have it played by the same actor and everything. Like you really get the sense that Hal Henry the Fifth. They're probably one of the, the most impressively written character arcs in Shakespeare, I would say. I don't know. I, I really appreciate it. Um, but getting into performance, though, it's yeah. always like the... That is a is, is a very infamous line that really puts everything that Hal does in, in those two parts into question of that saying, like, this is all just a cynical action. I don't really like these yeah. people at all, and I'm going to abandon yeah. them at the first moment. Yeah. But that the way that I feel that that Hillston plays it, that, that I think that's that's something he's telling himself that. But the way he looks when Falstaff begs him not to forsake him, yeah, it's it's something that he comes to realize. Oh wait, I actually do like these people. And uh oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that real quick because that's the next thing that we that we wanted to chat about was the differences between the plays and the films, and there aren't too many things, but. Um, <laughs> Having uh, this the scene where um, we learn that Hal, uh, what Hal's motivations are here. Um, it's an aside in in the play. Uh, in the film, it's done as like an inner monologue, as you said. He's kind of talking to himself and and mentioning that to himself. Aiden, Jamie, how do you how do you read that? How does that change the way, or does it change the way you look at Hal's motivations here? maybe compared to just reading it on the, the page or seeing it in other performances maybe that you've seen. Yeah. I mean, well, we would just watch the BBC production and there they, they stayed fa- fairly truthful to a, a stage adaptation where, you know, he's just speaking the soliloquy kind of to the, to the audience. So, um, I mean, in some ways it feels like it's just, uh, 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 yeah, a film adaptation of that, that kind of stage, uh, Trope, I guess. Or yeah. yeah, exactly. But but the way uh, they film it is interesting because he's he's wandering through the streets and it's and I agree with Jamie like it's it's a very kind of like he seems to have a real uh, affection, affection for the people who he's yeah. He, yeah he's walking through the streets and he's smiling he's glad handing um, but it doesn't seem forced it seems genuine um, and I, I agree I think like this production very different from the the BBC seventies one um, really does seem to lean into the idea that up to a point at least Hal really does love the East cheap crowd. Um, and he, he's kind of reluctantly turns his back on them, but realizes he has to at the same time. Whereas the BBC one was like, and it was most telling in the, you know, uh, when Hal's like pretending to be, uh, or when Falstaff, sorry, is pretending to be Hal and he asks, uh, Hal to play, uh, Henry the fourth and, yeah. uh, his name, uh, in the BBC production, it's very, Hal is very like, I will betray you. Like it, it's almost like a threat in that moment. Whereas, you know, Tom Hilson is like sheep, sheep, sheep faced. And is just like, Oh yeah, I guess I will. You know, it's, it's very painful almost for him. It's, it's, that scene is very foretelling of what's going to come in in part two and they played it very, very differently. So I, I, it was very interesting to, to see that. I, I, I liked this one more because I personally kind of want to believe that Hal has a soft spot for the East cheap crowd, but um, he's kind of forced to by the, 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 the reins of power to uh, come down hard on them. But um, yeah, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that, James? 
Uh, I mean, you said pretty much uh, a lot of what what I feel. Uh, I think the big thing, one, it's always a good good question of how do you adapt the aside, yeah. and how do you, and what do you do? Do you have it be just this fourth ball wall breaking, looking into the audience, which mm-hmm. is a very different experience when it's something recorded versus something on stage. Yeah, yeah, because there's a bit of a suspension of disbelief on on stage versus like uh, when you're when you're watching when you're something camera. unfold. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I it's interesting because those are the moments that usually that that, that um, the director uh, I believe it's Richard Ear d- directs some um, parts one and two okay. of Henry the uh, Fourth. He mm-hmm. he does. He has those. Um, uh, basically, he has the voiceover monologues for not just just how though, but for Falstaff as well. Which mm-hmm. is just that, that they're it, it's a bit them when they're more honest with themselves and a bit more somber and serious, and letting and they're not letting the reality out. Mm-hmm. It, it, is that they're they're still like going through the motions, and both of them are actually now that I think about it, and maybe seeing the artistic license or choice it's both of them are walking as they're as they're thinking these thoughts mm-hmm. and it's uh how walking through east jeep and thinking to himself well i like these guys but i'm just associating here just to basically make my reputation so bad that anything less better than this is just going to look so much better mm-hmm. but he says it also kind of like resignedly yeah mm-hmm. yeah just as resignedly as falstaff and in this nihilistic but also sincere moment where he's just saying like what is this honor yeah garbage that people yeah. talk about which yeah. i think falstaff's like for all that yes it's falstaff he's a clown he is this ass ultimately <laughs> but he's a lovable ass that's yeah. <laughs> and that's not always the thing and I don't know how much you guys want to talk about performances, but I do want to ask about how do you feel about Simon Russell Beale as Falstaff of just that Falstaff is a great example of that, of, of just like there with Bolingbroke of with Henry the fourth, many Shakespeare characters, quite frankly, of that you can go so many ways with such rich material of that Falstaff can be nothing but this lovable clown. That's Mm -hmm. really such a swell guy that represents the, the heart at the of the lower class working class England yeah. or it can be this total parasitic grifter that yeah. eventually just wears out his welcome and is just like and it's like yeah Hal ditch this this ass <laughs> right yeah. this is like why do you even like this guy yeah, yeah I, well, I, I, I go ahead Lindsay sorry no, I, I think we're going to say the same thing because we. I, I remember having this conversation when we watched it. But in uh, in part two, when um, Hal and Poins, I think it's Poins, they're up in the rafters above uh, Falstaff's bed when he's talking to uh, Doll Tearsheet, right? And mm-hmm. um, and uh, Hal overhears him saying all these nasty things about him. And in the BBC version, we watched the play version that we watched before we did our episode on, on part two. Um, it's still kind of played off as like a joking confrontation in this mm-hmm. film. Um, the way that that interaction happens between Hal and Falstaff 
between Hiddleston and Beale is that you have it, it's it's an angry confrontation, and I don't think they have another scene together really after that. Not so it's like end, a yeah. moment where yep. it, where everything turns, and it's like how might have had feelings of hesitation or regret over spurning Falstaff before this, but the way that that scene is played, and I and I. I don't know how much of that was a choice on the part of Beale as Falstaff or the director directing the scene, but to have that played as like the way they did it, um, that changed Falstaff. My interpretation of Falstaff changed watching yeah. that because it made me think that yeah. maybe Falstaff was just as conniving and just as opportunistic as Hal was. And they were maybe meant for each other in a weird kind of way because <laughs> he's, he's playing Hal just as much as Hal's playing him, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I thought that was, and it's interesting because they do actually remove a few lines because I remember watching the Henry the BBC production and they stayed very true and it seemed like the text had a bit more playfulness in it because they go back and forth about how oh no there was no offense intended and then yeah, yeah. Uh, Falstaff again plays it off and and he comes up with a witty res- response which they kind of deny him in the the Hollow Crown version so yeah. I think I think it was definitely like a directorial and and whole series choice but it really works well for this series because. It, it does make it a little bit more believable, um, not believable, but you, you kind of understand where it comes from for Hal when the, when the big switch happens at the end of part two, because um, yeah, cause you, you see this, it's, it seems like a much more concrete reason why Hal turns his back on them. Whereas the text I think is a little more ambiguous and it, it sets up Hal as a bit more of a, a conniver versus someone who's himself been spurned a little bit by mm-hmm. Falstaff. And so it makes Falstaff's motivations, getting back to the original point, James, is that it makes his character uh, a, a little more mercenary. It, whereas I think to a certain extent, the text and definitely the BBC production, you know, you really kind of feel for Falstaff at the end. I didn't feel that same amount of, of empathy towards him in the Hollow Crown version because he's he is so just like focused on, on, you know, thieving and, you know, he's, he's, he he's using, for it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Lady. No, but he, he's, he's a little more uh, using Hal as a means to an end, as opposed to actually enjoying Hal's company. He is just kind of exploiting Hal's uh, station and status a little bit more. It felt like, so mm-hmm. yeah, again, it, those all played together, obviously like the, the, I think the, the actor did a great job of, pulling that off in the hollow crown. Um, and I think the actor playing him in BBC production did a great job of keeping it lighthearted and, mm-hmm. and uh, a little more easy to uh, love Falstaff. So I think, I think they played off each other perfectly in that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, it was shocking for me to see him be Falstaff and be just this kind of funny, charming rascal after I'd saw him, Simon Russell Beale and The Death of Stalin, where he plays Laverenti Beria and is so terrifying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like the flexibility of actors. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Uh, and the, the other one, sorry, we, you can jump in if you want. Do you have something else? Oh, well, um, go on. Go on. Well, no, I was just going to jump to our next uh, big incidence of. Um, something that changed between the plays. And again, it's, it's really more of Lindsay's already kind of touched on it, but it's uh, having uh, in, in the reconciliation between Hal and Henry the fourth, there was an interesting directorial choice, I'd say to have other people in the room 
when they they reconcile and they have the court kind of watching this very tender personal moment. Cause Lindsay and I, when we, well, we just did this episode a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I remember when I read the text, I was like, this is such a beautiful, personal, uh, thoughtful, engaging connection between two human beings who have had very strange kind of circumstances foisted upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the Holocran, all of a sudden, it it felt performative. It was like this, this is all for, again, political ends. There was no, well, maybe not no, but there was less uh, personal meaning behind the words because they're even looking at the the other characters on on screen with them. Um, it's not so much that, that like I I'm trying to control this crown for us, father kind of, you know, handoff between father and son. It was more like our dynasty almost has to struggle with what this crown is. And the dynasty is kind of reliant on all the other people in this room. It, it was just, it was a very different choice. I just wanted to see if anybody had any other thoughts on that. Lindsay and I had talked about it a little bit for mm-hmm. before, but did you have any, well, uh, you're touching on something that was um, a YouTuber once commented on for like a brief, like minute by minute analysis of, um, is that that's a choice that the director chose for the for part one as well. Is that the is that the the insulting and being critical of of Hal is made when Cal Hal comes to court and right. his his brothers are there to witness his father to cry his son and heir and so it it, it, the court is like in the room but they're like can just like hear like maybe a a loud voice every now and then Uh and see the prince of wales be slapped by the king yeah Yeah. and and i think that's interesting because both cases it's it's really that 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 you said privacy and that that is true i mean the bbc production has the incomparable john finch an underrated shakespeare actor just pouring out his soul in in Mm -hmm. both the scene like the scene i just mentioned for part one and the later scene in part two of just being just this emotional wreck and just Mm -hmm. so embarrassed of his son yeah and it's partly just the way that jeremy irons is he's not as kind of a a volatile actor yeah Yeah. um uh, so him saying foolish tenderness for a desire to see you is a little bit more like kind of like a stern father than like yeah. than Finch yeah. where he's like kind of weeping about it. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I and this is going into uh, just the, the interpretation of Henry the fourth is that, and it kind of goes with what, what Kinnear went with Richard the second of that. Henry the fourth is just kind of this straightforward guy. And so he doesn't really have that pageantry. And so, and when he wants to insult, and having the court there as he's decrying Henry for, for taking his crown, th- this is him like saying like, do not blame me. Do not blame me. It is all on him. It is all on him. How dare you? You are such a disappointment. And like, yeah. you are yet again, a disappointment actually. And, and I want to chime in. This is a fun fact. Reality is unrealistic. This actually did happen. Oh, this really? actual yes, this isn't made up. This actually happened. Wow. Henry, Henry, like thought, like Dad, are you okay? Oh, okay. I guess I'll take the crown. And, and then, like Henry the Fourth woke up, was like, "Oh, what? Hey, give me back my crown!" Oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> and Henry the Fifth had to reality. apologize. Said, "Like Father, I swear, I swear, 
It was nothing personal. I, I don't want this. Here, take it back. I gladly give it back to you. And that moved Henry the Fourth, and they finally reconciled after a very long, complicated relationship. Wow. So, like, yes, that's a strange thing. It's like Shake- the most dramatic things you'd think Shakespeare made up is like, no, that actually didn't happen. <laughs> and I'm crazy. sure, like, like Henry the Fourth, Part Two, kind of like any play involving Falstaff was a little bit where the audience said, like, more Falstaff, more Falstaff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay, ooh, but I can also bring in this amazing moment from history that I didn't do with Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth. Yeah, yeah. And so that that performative nature I do like, and maybe I can somewhat transition into this overarching idea of of the Henry the. I don't disagree that yes, the Henry the Sixth tr- cycle. Is is a weaker cycle to the to the second Henriad, mm-hmm. but the one thing it's got going for it is that it's very much easier. Just like this is all a four part story. Mm-hmm. Again, this is very easy to go from basically, and the BBC does a phenomenal job of it. Of that, literally, you just end Henry the the six part three, and then literally you put in Henry the. Richard the Third, and you hear the music that was that ended that yeah that yeah. movie. So it's literally like it just seems like it's just from the other door that Richard was running out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like it's like wow, okay. But and that that's not exactly the case with 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 um the this cycle, and yet the Hollow Crown does a phenomenal job of making it where just like oh. Oh wow, this is like an overarching story. Because yeah. I came to Henry V originally when I read it in college for my Shakespeare class, just reading Henry V. And so plenty of moments where I was like, I have no idea why we have these lower class people in here other than <laughs> yeah. that we need comic relief. Yeah. And like all these references to Falstaff and Henry V's prayer is just like it just rang to me as just like, oh, just being scared and praying. Yeah. Yeah. But having Henry the Fourth in his in part one outright saying and that was like such a for me like wow oh wow you have really messed up henry and like this act on quotes this east east cheap hanging out with these ruffians where Mm -hmm. where henry says like you are in my eyes exactly what i thought of richard the second yeah and you are pretty much like i i completely expect you to be joining up with hotspur yeah Uh, of just like wow and then later on for for pretty much the in henry v the entire time the dauphin's kind of boldness with and presumption with henry v is because he has heard of his east cheap days and so he thinks like this guy's a clown yeah like don't take him seriously at all like what are we worried about this guy's an idiot and you have in mind like the scene where he's drinking wine out of the cask, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> laughing yeah. his butt off, and you're like, "Yeah, okay, I could see why he would think that." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another That's one. That- yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. That was that was one of the the best parts of of how they tied this one together. And and I, I have to say it like they again like they didn't they didn't have to adapt too much of the text to to achieve that. I think it was um, some you know some visual cues and stuff like like the one that that uh, really hit me was actually when. Uh, Bardolph had 
you know, they come across Bardoff's body yes. in Henry V, and, yeah. and he cuts back to the two of them laughing in, yeah. in the pub, and it's like, ooh, that one hurt, because... Um, I mean, he, Kenneth Branagh like, tried to do that, and it did have some punch, but just nowhere near the, the punch like of, that, of that, of that you've already spent four hours with Bardoff, so to see yeah. him hanging on a on a rope like that yeah. is yeah. another thing entirely. Well, and, and it added so much to, uh, to Hal's character at that point, because you, you see him, you know, he has that momentary pause and you're like, yeah, he feels that too, you know, like, but he's not going to let it overcome his, his kingly duties of enforcing discipline on his men, you know, and it's, it's, it really helped kind of shade the whole, um, character in, in such a great way that, uh, the, yeah, yeah, it, like, uh, yeah, like, like I've saw, I saw the, uh, uh, the Brana version of Henry V. It must have been like ten years ago now that I, so it's been a long time. But uh, yeah, I had a similar kind of approach at that point because I'm like, I hadn't, I hadn't remembered anything of Henry the Fourth. I was just like, oh yeah, who are these guys and what's going on? And just get me to you know, we few, we happy few. That's that's what I came <laughs> for, you know. So yes. it, it's a different approach, but. Um, I, I, I liked that they, they kind of drew it out just, just, just enough for me. It was just enough, uh, breadth across the, or connections across the films to, to really strike home for me personally. Well, I mean, and this is why I appreciate the, this cycle and the way that they approach it is that that prayer with, with the light and remembering Richard the second, he's speaking about how, and this is something that the, the orchestra later will, will claim for, for why they're justified for you removing Henry the sixth is that it's a, is that he's praying to God, don't punish me for the usurpation, please, please, please. Like mm. I have moved Richard's body. I have, I have done everything nice to Richard, Richard now, please, please, please. Like, cause he expects he's about to lose. Richard. And this is God's punishment for the usurpation, mm. which is very much on everyone's line. And from the, the warning from the Bishop of Carlisle, of mm-hmm. the the foreshadowing of the War of the Roses, that this foul act shall bring about tumultuous yeah. wars. Yeah, yeah. And it it unintentionally, <laughs> and that's why I love Richard the Second. Is uh, it's like, uh, but it's this guy. This guy is not really cut out to be king. This guy is not really like this guy is bad at king. Like he has alienated the subjects. He and like the the ransacking of of John of Gaunt's lands yes. is like is like the final straw right? it's yeah. just like yeah. it's just like he's already alienated the people by taxing the crap out of them <laughs> so so it's just like and then he also alienates the lord so it's just like yeah. okay yeah. so it's like yeah. but but at the same time the carlisle has a point where it's like but if you've kind of established that kingship is nothing and that you can just yep. change your mind about it well then we're in for a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were right up. I mean, to he Conwell. also is a Richard sycophant, <laughs> so that's why they can brush it off. It's like you're, you're, and he later conspires to try to kill Henry the Fourth. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the big change uh, that you didn't mention earlier, which um, the Royal Shakespeare Company went with as well, which I think that is a wonderful interpretation, is to have a Merle kill yeah. richard yes yeah, yeah we saw that in yeah, the you, oh yeah no it wasn't the royal shakespeare company the one with david Tennant, yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah and they did it here too with right that yeah i think that's brilliant because yeah. it really does make it a personal why did you like it so much jamie 
Uh, for me, one it one I, I love the the scene of of and it's sometimes played for comedy, but the scene of of the York's family begging for for a Merle yes. and his father yeah. not begging for a Merle, saying kill yeah. him, yeah. kill yeah. him. It's such a great dramatic scene, and bless Lindsay Duncan, she does such an amazing job of just selling her desperation to save her son. Yeah, and uh, the actor playing O'Merle just being like so. Th- this what's going on? <laughs> it's like th- this this wave, this blowing reed where he just like he was such a, a a huge member of of Richard's court, and so he's trying. And then I understand, and the choice to have him then basically it, it's like oh I got to ingratiate myself to Henry, mm-hmm. so I'm just gonna get do what he 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 kind of asked us to do. Wink, yeah. wink. Yeah. I'm just gonna get rid of Richard for him, and that'll make me love him. Yeah, him love me. Yeah, and and that's like it makes sense from a character choice of choice as well, where it makes complete sense. Where I've just barely escaped forgiveness for plotting treason. Yeah. So I'm gonna do him the biggest favor ever. Yeah. But but Henry just like yeah, I I wanted him dead because he's inconvenient, but I didn't want him dead. Hold yeah. somebody rid me of this meddlesome former king, but he didn't actually <laughs> yeah, exactly. mean it. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it so. is it is interesting to have O'Merle do that. Like I actually, in seeing it here again, I'm like, did I miss that in the text? Like, was it was it in the text? Because it feels like it could be. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, I don't, no, because they have like two. They have like a couple robbers or a couple. Yeah, just think like these two random characters yeah. that show up, and like that that, that that their debut is that. It's like, did you not yeah. mark the king's words? Yeah. 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 But it works so it much better. Henry the second with the archbishop. Kind oh of. yes, it, yes. That, that's where that that's where that took it from, and then yeah, it, yeah. But it it does make sense. I mean, especially with something like the Hollow Crown, where they're not wedded to the text in terms of like representing all the characters and all the lines and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It just makes total sense to have this kind of emotional arc for that character, and also for Richard. Like it, in uh, the Royal Shakespeare, especially, we commented on it. It was like. Yeah, when because when David Tennant kind of like sees who's killing him, it's like this really heartfelt moment, especially because they'd played up the homosexual angle between the two of them so much. Um, th- this one, it was kind of interesting. I'd actually like your take on this one, James, because Lindsay and I were commenting on it. They kind of seem to be building towards a similar kind of reading of of Richard is gay, and then they really kind of backed off it a little bit in the later sections of the, the film. Yeah, I felt he was. Um, I got in some ways a bit of a pansexual vibe yeah maybe that's uh, better. That, sure. that, that, yeah. that he just like he, he was just as attracted to the the man posing as saint sebastian yeah as he was like as he was attracted to his wife his wife or, yeah. yeah as well yeah. although not as much as um the bbc version as that that is the most heartbreaking version of that scene i've ever seen yeah. i'm just like the, the actress playing the queen is just so heartbroken by this and mm-hmm. just just like please just send me with him oh and so going on interpretations but also continuity so we we spoke earlier about how and i love how much 
Bolingbroke kind of just accidentally becomes king mm -hmm. and how utterly sincere he is when he says like I just want my lands <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's like it's like yeah he executes like the people that ransacked his lands but like that's it yeah it's like yeah. it's just like I just want my lands and and so when, later on when he when he approaches the castle and this is why I say Bolingbroke and Richard it's a great thing of of what you bring to them mm. of how much they're sincere when they say when, when when he approaches the castle of saying i just want my lands but if you don't i will have to lay siege <laughs> and and the way that that this northumberland played by david morrissey aka the governor from walking dead like oh, he is yeah. just utterly like shocked by this is like what you you actually mean it yeah and he's actually annoyed by it <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like, what? No, it, it's too late for that. No, like he's not gonna still be king. No, yeah. And and this more conniving—that's uh, the way I would describe it. This is a very Buckingham uh, interpretation of Northumberland, where he is very like he he one hundred percent from the get go is like Bolingbroke is the best person to replace Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that one scene where they're starting the conspiracy, so to speak, yeah. it's like he's like driving. He's like, no, we got one option. It is Bolingbroke. We're going to bring that mother back. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's definitely it's definitely interesting because like, yeah, the, especially the RSC production. I don't even remember that scene at all, actually. And it's only been a couple months since we watched it. But with that one, I remember like they were driving that home. Yeah. Well, and then it, it adds to and then the, the, the theme of continuity and and cycle of just one that Richard warns like and predicts Henry the fourth of like eventually like you, Henry's not going to trust you and you're going to be annoyed at Henry and you're going to fight it out eventually mm -hmm. and it yeah. comes to pass and that's mm -hmm. what Hotspur immediately cites is and like the entire time is that beyond some like semi legitimate grievances and that's the difference with with the Richard the second rebellion versus the Henry the fourth rebellion is I feel that with Richard II, there's just this long list of real grievances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as the wonderful Patrick Stewart is able to give Gaunt, the Gaunt line yeah. such resonance of just landlord, not king. Yeah. Which that all you care about, like a landlord, is just to exploit us. Yeah. Like that's all you care about at this point. You don't care about ruling us. And that's getting into the theme of the the histories is mm -hmm. what is it to be king and what is your duty is it just like i i am richard i am an anointed king and that therefore i am holy therefore yeah. i am a martyr and how dare you question me because i am your king yeah versus you get to the point of of henry the six where i care nothing but my people but yeah but you gotta also rule yeah <laughs> yeah you can't go off and be a shepherd like you want to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and so just, but Hotspur, like he, he's much more jealous and just vain in, in his reasons yeah. for rebelling. Other than that, he, he cites a couple times like, yeah, Mortimer is the rightful heir, which they, which is why Henry doesn't trust Mortimer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but then it's just like that the, they cite several times like, Hey, we're, you're an ingrate. Like we made you king. We mm -hmm. and, and they cite that several times in the battle. Like we made you king. What the hell is this? Yeah. Right. 
it's very self-serving. It's it's not so like yeah, they don't care about who the rightful king is. They just want whatever the king is to be in their pocket and do what they want, right? And it's very political. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like a it's like it's mercenary. It's it's modern politics. You know, it's it's very yeah, much special it's interest very real lobbyists and that kind of thing. <laughs> Where that's what it feels like. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I don't know what you're like. talking about. <laughs> um, I love that. As a Game of Thrones fan, I also loved having the rightful heir be played by the actor who played Viserys. Just like perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like a different version of the same character, the rightful heir. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying funny. to plot getting back his throne. That's good. And and so just. The cycle, though, uh, of that, uh, and uh, in terms of performance, also, I just want to ask: we touched on earlier, but what do you feel about Jeffrey Irons as? And in terms of reading, that was just pure creative. Uh, it's not there at all in the text, and it does actually reflect real history. Is that at Shrewsbury, just after the victory of Shrewsbury, suddenly Henry the Fourth is sick, and, and like his yeah. final lines are 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 not like this triumphant line. They're actually like, oh crap, he is sick. He's about to, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I thought that was that was interesting just in terms of like setting the stage for part two very yes. well. It was, it was, seemed to me like it was just a transitional scene almost, but it was, it did add something to his character again to like kind of, because he'd just been riding around swinging that sword and then all of a sudden, you know, he's got the black lung and it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah. that, that's that's convenient, but, <laughs> but it, does, it does work. And okay, again, that's actually a reflection of real history. Yeah, like literally, pretty much right after after Shrewsbury, like one of the people he executed was I forget what it, exactly his title, but I think it was a Yorkist bishop, and he was one hundred percent guilty. But the people, it's like you can't execute a bishop, <laughs> and it seemed like God made his opinion on the matter very clear. Because suddenly Henry the Fourth got plagued by sickness, a debilitating sickness that people at the time thought was plague. Right. Uh, okay. But, but but now it was like, well, we don't know. It was something. Yeah. yeah. Pneumonia or something. Yeah, it's just like, but, but suddenly it's like, wow! Like right after the battle, you suddenly became sick. Right after you executed a bishop. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a pretty clear sign. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No doubt. Uh, that's fine. Uh, so just moving on to. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Liz. Go ahead. No, I was going to say the same thing, I think. We were on the same page here. I think, yeah. <laughs> it, it, so going from Shrewsbury and talking about these these grand battle scenes, like the the attention to detail in the production of the Hollow Crown is something that we've remarked on in conversations with each other, me and Aiden. Um, uh-huh. People have said it uh, multiple places that this is what the BBC does really well. Is like they have they have their national stories that they want to tell about themselves and they, they are very fiercely protective of these things. So they pour money into mm-hmm. those things that hold up, you know, capital B British capital C culture. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Sherlock yes. is one of the, the highest production values uh, in, in their, well, I mean, it's not being made anymore, but you know, that's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We're going to do that. And Dr. Who gets, all of this money thrown on it. And then you get like a production like the hollow crown, which is you, you can see the, the, the attention to detail and the, the love, the obvious um, adoration that they're pouring into this because it's Shakespeare. Right. And that's mm-hmm. something that um, 
you know, Aiden and I being in Canada, we see that with the CBC, with our public broadcaster, our national public broadcaster, and the way that they approach Canadian stories, you know, movies Albeit about- with a lot less money. Well, yeah, they'll do it with a lot less money, and they'll film it at the <laughs> local hockey rink instead, you know, the, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, American history, I guess, you know, it, there's a little bit- I'm, I'm the cynic here talking, you know, it's Hamilton on Disney plus. It's a little bit more corporate than it is for the Brits. But, but I just, I guess the question that I'm getting at is, is what kind of role does a public national broadcaster have in preserving a nation's history for better or for worse? Right. Like, I mean, I guess in the, in the States you guys have like PBS does, you know, the American experience series and there, there are things that, that come out of a public broadcaster, but that seems to be what the BBC does these days. And (laughs) it seems to be the only place where that kind of story can be told. And I'm, I'm just wondering out loud, like what kind of role does that have and you having lived in london for three three months you said right like yes. you, you probably have a pretty interesting view on that so what are your thoughts well i mean and this is something that's a fundamental difference even though for the commonality of language between america and britain i don't want to go too deep into that mm-hmm. but the, there's the Many things are more nationalized in Britain than like America nationalized nothing. <laughs> Everything right. should be corporate. We're, we're, people are trying to corporatize prisons and police yeah. and everything. Yeah. Just like get it out of public hands is, is, yeah. is almost always the, the go-to. I mean, Americans, PBS mostly is great for rebroadcasting British shows. Yeah. Um, and That's for, a good point. Yeah. And like showing, like they, they broadcast american theater productions occasionally yeah but but yeah no 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 i mean and and so i mean corp corporate culture does try to promote our culture but it's always tied again with money because mm-hmm. we're a bit more privatized and so and so i think that's sometimes a little bit unconscious I, i'd say mm-hmm. because bbc is very flexible that they, they made a brexit movie yeah <laughs> Yeah. Like fairly re- right after. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's pretty damn critical of Brexit and it's yeah. funded by the BBC. So, yeah. <laughs> and like it was pretty disparaging for its depiction of the man who would soon become their prime minister. Right. <laughs> yes. They portrayed him as an utter buffoon yeah. in that movie. And yeah. it has Benedict Cumberbatch making himself try to be as ugly as possible with a comb over. <laughs> yeah. So, but. <laughs> But I mean, what you're touch, touching about earlier and what I kind of alluded to earlier, it's a very odd, like this was made for a cultural celebration, but like yeah. the, the tone is the sad story of the death of kings. Yeah. So it's like they're, they're completely right and justified to, and I think that goes into the British culture itself. Mm. Is Britain, a post-imperial Britain is always a bit more skeptical of patriotism in general. Yeah, okay. It's and also of Europe, kind yeah. of as yeah. voting trends would prove, <laughs> and uh, they they're they're very they they look on their history a little bit more critically mm. than than America does, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting statement of of saying that when at this moment where the whole world was turned to Britain when they wanted to celebrate Britain of we are celebrating our beloved queen 
our one constant through 60 tumultuous years. Right. We, we are celebrating the greatest author of all time, uh, of, of one of the greatest, definitely the greatest writer of the English language and perhaps the greatest writer of all time. Yeah. And he's our, one of ours, so yay. So we're gonna do, and we're gonna do plays about that represent his time, mm -hmm. that, that represent our history made by our greatest writer. But we're not gonna be celebratory in, in selling our history. We're gonna be honest. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, and I think that is right to to say that, what was it all for? What was it all for? What, what was this yeah. War of the Roses? What was it all for? Because unless you're a real big Tudor lover, because <laughs> even the Tudors then, <laughs> but, but you get that Henry V, where it's just like, yes, you did these amazing things, but there was that, and John Hurt, and the way that they do it, to have it, the epilogue be, yes. be spoken at his funeral of like yep. that, it was just this brief moment. Yeah. It was this brief moment of glory, this brief moment where, where the King of England was ruler of, of two co countries, mm -hmm. and in how quickly that fell apart. Yeah. And it was, what, what was it all for? Yeah. In the end, like, what did these Lancasters accomplish in their usurpation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, it just brought war. And maybe sometimes it wasn't civil war, but is it, that's interesting things to talk about for your history, mm -hmm. to, to struggle with. And something that my own country right now, that Hamilton kind of brought up, is yeah. is reflecting on our founders and how and how, how much should we, if at all, venerate them because right. half of them were slaveholder holders. Yeah. And yeah. some of them had complicated feelings about it. Yeah. And one of our presidents had children with a slave. Yeah. What do we do with that? Right. What do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with that? What do we do with our history? That's always a question. And that's a really interesting point that you that you bring up about um the the difference in critical approach between Britain and America, because it does seem like uh, a corporatized version of of if we could imagine that a, like a corporatized version of of the Hollow Crown, say that was done by like a, a big movie studio or backed by private company, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like it would have yes, it would definitely be a different film, and and that I think is. Um, because they're, they're going to try and sell some things. They're going to sell an idea. Hamilton mm -hmm. is trying to sell the idea of, I don't know, pick your poison, right? Look but it's, it's, it's well, fathers were so fun, you know? I'll make it easy for you, Lindsay. It's trying to say, it's trying to say Alexander Hamilton, this guy was awesome. He shouldn't be right. a forgotten founding father. That's basically right. what Hamilton is saying. <laughs> oh, I've exactly. got opinions and about that, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's that's definitely worth looking at. I don't know that that America right now it's it's heading in the right direction. Like there are certainly conversations happening now that wouldn't be happening, you know, twenty or thirty years ago on this kind of level. So it's 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 a good thing. It's not something that's going to be explored in a Disney plus version of, <laughs> of the founding father story, like but a BBC yeah. production can, and I don't, I don't, I really don't have an answer for that. Like, why is it that, cause yeah, you're right. Like having it be 
during the Olympics year and the Diamond Jubilee year. I mean, that's that's a bold choice. And the BBC does that yeah. often, which is so funny because the BBC news arm has come into problems of its own with some of its biases <laughs> and stuff like that. But I guess it's kind of like 20th century Fox, like the Fox entertainment division and the Fox news division. Maybe there's a bit of a divide like that between BBC and talk, their yeah. entertainment division and well, the news division. I don't know. But. They, they did officially break off completely. Right. So, but yes. <laughs> yes. But well, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a good point, Lens, though. Yeah, because like, I mean, it's just it's it's an expression of the culture, really. I mean, like, that's what it really comes down to. It's just, that's such a great distillation of like, you know, Hamilton on Disney Plus for eight dollars a month or, you know, 12 hours of very somber Tom Hiddleston and <laughs> on the BBC for free. <laughs> the way you put it that way it's like well that's britain and that's america and you're like okay well that that works so i mean yeah like i don't know like i don't think you can just do a i don't think you could do a a friggin 24-hour podcast on breaking down all the reasons why that happens because it is just like a and then ours Lindsay. i mean come on we don't have anything like hockey night in canada is like that's our well no i mean the cbc did back the like it was like an 18 hour or something and I only know about this because I had to teach social studies grade seven, which is Canadian history. So we did have a, a documentary. So Canada is very good at documentaries. That's us as a people. We just like to talk about the land that we live on. Winterland, yeah. who's who, right? It's, it's yeah, yeah. no, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Would you know about the house hippo otherwise, Aiden? No, it's true. It's That's the only thing that ties our country together, really, is the house hippos. House hippos. So. <laughs> That's a Canada only thing. So. <laughs> that's a deep cut. Um, <laughs> still seems anyway. funny to me. Just like I get it. Kind of like obscure thing. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. I, yeah that, okay. Well no, yeah, I don't think we're gonna come to a no, firm answer not. on that one, but it's uh, no. it's a good good point to make. But what we could yeah. have come to an answer to, and, and this again in lieu of our normal bickering that we would end an episode with, I think yes. we all have very definite opinions about our favorite uh our favorite film in the Hollow Crown cycles, cycle one, cycle two. Uh James, I'm gonna let you go first. What was your favorite of all of these films? And why? We've already kind of asked, but we're going to put you on the spot now. Yeah. You have to pick one. Yeah, yeah. If I had to pick one, it would be Richard II. Yeah, if I yeah. had to pick one, yeah. it would definitely be Richard II. Of just the, the complexity of the performances, the nuances, mm-hmm. and how wickedly subversive th- that, that movie is. Of that, You think there's about to be this giant duel, and then there isn't. You think there's yeah. about to be a big siege battle, and there isn't. Mm-hmm. And you even think that there might be another coup d'etat, and there isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And these very interesting and complex characters and these great performances. If you get so yeah. much insight into this, and how you hate Richard only until about the halfway point, and then you suddenly feel sorry for him, which is yeah. very interesting. But you don't forget, like that. He yes, he's still a jerk, but I kind of feel bad for him. Yep. No, and, and the the beach scene is oh, like amazing. Yes. They did such a great job with that. That yeah. was that was incredible. So I, yeah, I can I see love, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're you, absolutely what, right what, that it's the it's it's an underrated Shakespeare history play, Richard the Second. It's one I hadn't read until we did this on the podcast. So I, I definitely would. Uh, Aiden, you were asking what what I think. 
Um, I, I would well, go with Richard the third is my favorite one. Oh, and that's a great and choice. Um, I think we, we kind of touched on the, the different stylistic or directorial choices for asides. And I really liked the way that Richard's scheming with the camera. I've always mm-hmm. liked the fact that Richard involves the audience in his plan, like throughout the, the play. <laughs> But to yes. have it be Benedict Cumberbatch and his like greasy long hair and like looking directly into the camera as he's brushing past people on the stairwell. Like I, I just thought it was really, um, I don't know. It, 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 it makes it part, it, you become part of the story so much more. You're so much more closely tied to the events of the story. You become complicit in it. And I just love that tension that it made me feel when I was watching it. I've always liked Richard the third as a play. So I, I, I would have to say that's my favorite. Aiden, what about you? I know, I know what you're saying. And I, I just want to say, I agree oh, that, yeah. that that's so fascinating about that one. I know we're not talking about that, that series, but yeah. just, like you're, you're complicit and, but you're also complicit when later on, when he basically crosses the one line that even Buckingham pauses of when it's just like, I want to get rid of the princes. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, Linz, I would have to say mine is Henry V. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's more, I think it's because we watched them so quickly together. Um, it really did feel like, like it, it's good on its own. And I, I like Tom Hiddleston. And I thought, you know, like giving him the goatee to show him he's he's more mature <laughs> was kind of an odd choice, but uh, but that's fine. Um, but you no, know, there was, there was a, it was, there was a lot to like about it. And I, I I really did feel like it was kind of like the culmination of the series in a very naturalistic way. I think that was kind of what's uh, kind of cinched it for me, but all the other elements of it, I liked the, the grittiness of the, the uh, scenes. I liked how, like even when he's giving like these big emphatic speeches, it's really just to a couple of guys, like his commanders and stuff Mm. like that. Um, I, I felt like it was, it was a very kind of deeply realistic Shakespeare thing like I felt like this might have actually been what it was like you know outside of Agincourt or the day before Agincourt um you know where th- the the king might have actually you know said very similar words and I, I've never actually got that with almost any other Shakespeare adaptation it's always and a part of it's just because of the language and stuff but it always feels a little distant and for some reason this play maybe it was because i'd had we'd been engrossed in it for the last couple of days watching the the previous parts um but i was just like yeah this feels like okay yeah I, i'm with this hal in this place uh i really bit into it into that kind of combination of things so it was well he's like was, he's delivering a lot of those speeches like down in the trenches he's not riding back on his horse in front of a line yes. of troops like you know, it's it's not regal. Yeah. It's like it's he, not Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's, this is an Aragorn. Yeah. You know, it's 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 yeah. Prince Hal, who always was a man of the people. Literally mm-hmm. shown here. I, I think that's that's a good point. I I do like how uh, Henry feel that way. Yeah, and I also like that they didn't really tip his, tip the hat too much towards him being like of the people like there's yeah. there's a bit of it but you know that scene where he's it's one of my favorite scenes in all of shakespeare where he goes in and he's talking to the, yes. the guys yes. uh the day before the battle and he's yeah. trying to absolve himself a little bit but he's also trying to just take the temperature of the troops yeah. and this one played it very much like no this guy doesn't like him and yeah. he kind of makes peace with it at the end, like when they confront each other again and he pulls out his his glove and he's like, here, sir, is your other glove. Yeah. It's like, it, it feels good because it's like how 
knows that this guy didn't hate him or didn't, didn't really appreciate his leadership. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, but he's still okay with it. Cause it, it, a, cause it turned out fine. And B, cause he, he still does kind of respect the, the rights of his subjects to disagree with him. And, and that was kind of like, yeah. And that was, that was kind of interesting. It was, it's cause sometimes like, um, I can't remember how the Branagh version did it, but I don't, I don't, again, I don't, I remember the scene of him talking to the troops, but not the confrontation afterwards. Oh, they didn't um, include that. that. That was excised. Okay. So that's and, uh, probably what I remember. So yeah. So like that, like that, that was a, a really good choice for me to, to see that kind of element. Cause that's, that's one of the more interesting parts of Hal's character is like this, this torn between two worlds and to see where they wind up, wound up in this version. Uh, I like that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my preferred one. Cool. All these are great answers. <laughs> well, it is a great series. It's a good series. And, so, and, exactly. And that's, yeah, that's exactly why it's it's easy to talk about because there is so much to talk about. Like we could spend hours and hours and hours discussing it um, because it is so rich and richly developed, and that comes because it's Shakespeare, but also because it's you know a BBC production that's always very faithful and always exciting to watch. So um, yeah. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add before we sign off here? Um, I, 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 I don't think I have anything more to say right now. I mean, like you said, I, I could talk for more hours. <laughs> I'd love to talk with you both for, for more hours about this series. Yeah. Um, there's so much. I mean, if, if we had touched the, the second series, I could have raved about, Sophie Okonedo as Margaret. Oh God! It was a performance I adored. Yes, and like all of it. Just yeah. and the way she was able to capture the range of of Margaret's sad journey. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Just thank you so much for having me on, and yeah. it's been so great to talk to you guys about this and touch on a little little strange history anecdotes I do know. Yeah, well, and, and thank great. you for bringing so much of the historical context as well, like stuff that, yeah, I, I hadn't, I didn't know a lot of that. That was, that was really cool. It, it changes the way you, you look at the, I guess, Shakespeare as a historian, maybe we don't give him enough, give him enough credit, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> Ricardians have quite w- some words about Richard III. That's all I'll say. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Possibly rightfully yeah. so. Um, <laughs> James, how can people find you, get in touch with you on social media? Well, I am on Twitter. Uh, it's Dragon Ball Z name, SS Vegerot Forever, I think okay. is, is, is what it is. Um, uh, the, the big thing that um, I, I, I'm, I mainly do for my fun time and my other job is I'm a comic book writer, oh. not artist. I wish I could draw. It would make things much easier. And... Um, <laughs> If you look on Facebook, look up Olympian Comics. You can find several comics for free that I've done, including uh, a nine-page adaptation of of some the final scenes of Richard the Third. Oh wow! Oh, awesome! And you are I, a man uh, of many talents, my friend. <laughs> thank you. And um, <laughs> you can also check out my uh, podcast, Ranking Thrones. It's a Game of Thrones podcast, but it, that channel also hosts Shakespeare on screen, my Fantastic. podcast where I talk about with such as these lovely hosts about, <laughs> about Shakespeare adaptations. So thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Thank pleasure. you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much.
You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.